Well, uh, if you're just joining us today for the first time, uh, we're studying uh, the life of Moses, and uh, we're calling this series Living in Freedom. And uh, today, uh, we get to a really important event in the life of the people of God. Now, uh, for last week, we took a break for Easter, so we, we probably need to reorient ourselves to where we are in uh, the story of Moses' life. Um, God has uh, revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. He's called Moses into Egypt where Moses has conducted the ten plagues, including the Passover. Um, Moses has then led the people of God out of Israel through the Red Sea, been pursued by the Egyptian army where he saw God destroy the Egyptian army and save them from their pursuers by having the waters flood over them. And... um, This is after that, when God has begun to lead the people of God himself as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And in that context, we read this, that after the people of God have seen all of those incredible miracles, this is what takes place in Exodus 17, beginning in verse 1. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to go stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites complained And because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, as we look at this passage today, we're going to learn four really important things. First, we're going to learn how our desires become demands. Then we're going to learn the dangers of demanding this, what it does to our hearts. Then we're going to look at why God told Moses to strike the rock. And then finally, we're going to consider how to drink. From the rock. First, how our desires become demands. To understand what's going on here, you need to begin by acknowledging that the Israelites had a legitimate desire for water. Um, when they were led out of Egypt, God had told them to bring all their flocks and herds. They had crossed the Red Sea, and after crossing the Red Sea, God took them on a three day journey to a spring which they couldn't drink because it was poisoned, it was bitter. We read about this in Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. It says this, Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea. They went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That is why they named it Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. 
When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statute and ordinance with them at Morah, and he tested them there. Now, I want you to notice that final verse. He tested them there. Essentially what this is, is it's like a pretest, right? It's like when you come back from summer break and you're in your new classes and you show up and on the first day of class, your teacher gives you a test. And the, the purpose of this test is to show her and to show you what you have forgotten during the summer. Right? You have what's called the summer slide. You, when you're off in some, over the course of the summer, you forget all the math you knew, you forget all the reading you knew at the end of the year. And so the teacher has to kind of be like, all right, how far behind are we today? And that's essentially what God is doing here. The people of God have been in Israel for 450 years. And they've been in slavery for at least one entire generation. So all of these people grew up in slavery. And essentially what God is trying to do here at the beginning of his new relationship with them is they're coming out of slavery and they're entering into the wilderness. They're on the other side of the Red Sea and God tests them. And so the purpose of this test is to show them what's going on in their heart. And here's how he tests them. He wants to see what will happen to their faith when they experience an unmet but legitimate desire for something they need. So what happened? Well, they started grumbling, right? They started grumbling. Why? Uh, I like the way Dr. Larry Crabb puts this in my favorite book, Inside Out. He says this, We have definite plans for achieving happiness, or at least for finding relief. Those plans are rooted in the ways of thinking about life that are so inherently embedded in our makeup that we never think to question them. We tend to measure someone's love by their degree of cooperation with our plans. God's refusal to help us pursue our goals and His insistence that we yield our plans to His make Him seem unconcerned about our happiness. And here we are. The people of God have seen the ten plagues. They've been delivered from slavery to Egypt. They've walked through the Red Sea. They've been rescued from an army that was about to destroy them. And they're three days without water. And what do they do? Well, they start believing that God might be unconcerned about them. And so they start grumbling. And this grumble in their heart would eventually fruit out into a bitterness and resentment about the circumstances into which God was leading them. Now, instead of rebuking them for their unbelief, God graciously provides for them and then moves them into a place of abundance. We see this in Exodus 15, 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the water. Now, this place was perfect, right? Like 12 tribes of Israel... 12 springs, everybody's got their own spring, 70 date palms, like dessert for days, right? People are fired up, they are psyched and ready to be there. They're as content as they could possibly be until God leads them away from their prosperity. Acts, I mean, excuse me, Exodus 16, 1 through 3. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam. And they came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. 
The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you have brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. So what's going on here? Well, notice now God has given them prosperity and then commanded them to let it go. And they're grumbling about being led to a bitter spring while thirsty has turned into a narrative about God's plan for their lives. Their fears have taken over and they've concluded that God can't be trusted. He brought us out of Egypt to kill us. Anne Lamott calls this bad mind, right? When bad mind takes over, it starts telling you what's true about God and your circumstances and your safety with him. And as we saw when Aaron taught on this passage two weeks ago, this is when God once again graciously provides the Israelites with manna, the bread from heaven. In Exodus 16, 4 and 5, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they'll follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they're they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gathered on the other days. So again, we've got a test from God for his people. The first was a test of scarcity. What are you going to do when you don't have what you desire? The second one was a, scarce of, a test of prosperity. What are you going to do when I give you what you ask for? And they failed both tests. Exodus 16, 27 through 28. Yet on the seventh day, some people went out to gather, but they did not find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Which brings us to today, okay? The passage we're looking at today. Moses says the entire Israelite community went, left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them, why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now notice where we are now. God is no longer testing his people. The people are testing God, right? They're putting God to the test. How does that happen? Well, Jesus' younger brother James describes how it happens this way in James 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And this is what is so dangerous about demanding us. Um, it ha it's anesthesia to pain, but it is, um, comes with this cloaking device. You don't understand what it's doing to you because what it's doing to you 
is it's beginning to change your complaint and your groan and your grumble into a persistent belief that is a narrative about God, a story you start telling yourself about why he can't be trusted. He can't be trusted to provide. And so the consequence of that is there's a whole people of God who've experienced miracle after miracle questioning God's character. Again, Crab's helpful here. He says, when difficult problems grow worse, it's tempting to give up on God. When the ultimate source of power refuses to take up our just cause, then whatever is required to find relief seems entirely warranted. Notice the central problem. It's neither the hurt in our soul, it's okay to hurt, nor our desire for relief and satisfaction, it's okay to thirst, it's the demand. When we demand relief of our thirst now, we're in danger of slipping from a biblical ethic into a morality of blatant moral pragmatism. Whatever eases our pain is justified. The result is often blatant moral compromise and a ruined life. This is why we experience road rage. This is why we commit adultery. This is why we cheat on our taxes. This is why we get addicted to substances. This is why we look at things on our phone that we shouldn't be looking at. Why? Because we don't trust God with our unmet desires. We simply are not willing to wait for Him to meet them in His way, in His time. We start questioning whether or not what we've been told about God is even true. Look again at verse 7. He named the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now remember, they could see him. He was a pillar of fire by night. He was a cloud of smoke by day. They could see the Lord. And still, they're like, is he even for us? Did he just bring us out of here to kill us? Right? They have gone completely gospel insane. They have lost the gospel completely. And what are the results? Well, when we get in, give in to this kind of thinking, when we start judging God based on our circumstances, our hearts very naturally get hard. Psalm 95 says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me though they had seen what I did. Because this is such a dangerous situation, God intervenes. Verse 4, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? In a little while they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people. Take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Now, this event becomes a pivotal spiritual moment for Moses. In fact, the first thing he sang about when he finished writing the five first books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, is this event, right? So he, he concludes the first five books of the Bible, and when he gets to the end, he's euphoric because he's finally finished his life's work. And he sings this song, and he doesn't sing about God in the burning bush. He doesn't sing about God taking them through the Red Sea. He starts here. Those come up later, but the, the song begins this way in Deuteronomy 32, 1-4. Pay attention, heavens, and I will speak. 
Listen, earth, to the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words settle like dew, like gentle rain on new grass and showers on tender plants, for I will proclaim the Lord's name, declare the greatness of our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God without bias. He is righteous and true. So, so what is it about this scene that had such an impact on Moses' heart? What is it that this became the central metaphor that he used for his own understanding of God? Well, to understand that, you need to understand the last time God called Moses and told him to gather the elders of Israel together. It happened on the night of the 10th plague. Exodus 12, 21 through 23. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it into the blood that is in the basin, brush the lintel in the two doorposts with some blood in the basin. None of you may go out the door of his house until morning when the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees blood on the lintel in the two doorposts. He'll pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your house and strike you. So the last time the people of Israel had seen the elders gather was on the night of the death of the firstborn, when the Lord himself was going to strike through and because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart, kill every firstborn male, animal and human in the nation of Egypt. And that had resulted in Pharaoh finally letting the people of God go. So consider the situation. Here they are, they've grumbled against Moses, they've questioned the character of God. Now it's not Pharaoh's heart that's hard, it's their heart that's hard. God says, fine, you want a judgment? You want to judge me? Let's go to court. And he sets the people of Israel up on this side. He lines up Moses and the elders here and he says, hey, bring that staff that I gave you to strike the Nile that turned it to blood for the first plague. Bring that. And I'm going to get up on this rock behind you. And I'm going to tower over the people of Israel. As soon as that situation took place, as soon as that scene set up, everybody there knew the Israelites were in major trouble. They were about to receive the just consequences of their hard hearts. Their arrogant, entitled self-righteous questioning of God's character because they weren't getting bread and water on demand. And yet, what happens? Well, Crabb puts it this way. He says, When a suffering saint pours out the sorrow of his soul, our Lord reveals himself as a great high priest, a caring advocate who is touched by his struggles. But when that sorrow has been twisted into a bitter spirit of demandingness, his lament is met with a steely glare of a surgeon, ready to cut out the disease with a glistening scalpel. God thunders out a challenge. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Everybody assembled there had every right to believe that the people of Israel were about to be struck down that the wages of sin, their death, was about to take place, and that God would just start over with Moses and the elders of Israel like he did with Abraham. He would just make a new family for himself. 
He would begin again, like he did with Noah after the ark. They had every reason to think, well, this is it. We're done. But instead, God said, verse 6, I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. So what we see happening in the life of Moses is God taking the thirsty Israelites three days from the shore of the Red Sea, telling them to throw a tree into the water to remove its impurities, giving them bread from heaven, assembling them after they have demanded of him and questioned his character, and instead of telling Moses to strike them with the rod that began the plagues due to Pharaoh's hardness of heart, he says, I want you to turn around and I want you to strike me with that rod. I want the just consequences of the sin of my people to fall on myself so that they can drink from me. So that they can know that their desires are pointing them to something real. And that I'm willing to die to give it to them. Thousands of years later, when Jesus, the one who Moses predicted would come after him, who would be greater than him, arrived, And the people of God assembled during the Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's water miracles by pouring out water on the altar in the temple on the greatest day of the feast. John tells us that this is what took place in John 7. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So when was Jesus glorified? Well, he was glorified when he was placed on a cross of wood. And all the bitterness of our sin was placed on him. And there he endured God's just wrath due our sins and died in our place so that we could receive from him the spirit of life, the spirit that resurrected him from the dead. Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. Now I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So how do we do that? How do we drink the living water, the Holy Spirit, from Jesus? Well, we do it, when we make Jesus the source of all of our information about God's character and all of our information about our unmet desires instead of our circumstances. When we begin to look to Jesus to tell us who God is, when we begin to look to Jesus to tell us our future instead of looking at our circumstances, that's how we drink from the rock. And when we do that, two things happen. 
First, we are able to conclude with Paul that our desires are pointing us towards something real, no matter what is happening in our life at the time. Romans 8, 31-39. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring any accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we're being put to death all day long, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, people who drink from the rock that is the resurrected Christ who promised to go and prepare a place for us to live with him in paradise forever, who promised to come back and recreate the world and populate it with resurrected, sinless human beings, who promised that the meek will inherit the earth, those people understand what C.S. Lewis was trying to explain in the quote we put on the front of your bulletin. And it's this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And this is freedom, right? This is freedom. It's the freedom from the need to have this life meet your God-sized desires. Your God-sized desires for what? Well, for a perfect job, for a perfect home, for a perfect government, for perfect relationships for a perfect body, for perfect friendships, for perfect purpose, for perfect peace. That's not what Jesus came to give you. Jesus came to give you a promise that those things are coming, and then he came to give you, what, a deposit that guarantees that that's coming. Paul describes it this way, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He appointed us... And he set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. This is the second way that you drink in Jesus. You receive the Holy Spirit. God has promised, I'll give the Holy Spirit to anybody who asks of me. And so ask the Lord to fill you with his spirit. But as he does so, what the spirit is going to tell you is you're not home yet. When the spirit takes up residence in your heart, you will groan. You will receive from him desires that dislocate you from this world, that tell you there's more. You want more than this world to offer, and it's coming. And it will set your heart on pilgrimage. And that frees us to say with Paul in Acts 8, I mean, excuse me, Romans 8, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Now in this hope we're saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? 
Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. So when I was with Thomas and Laurie Lee yesterday, um, after we spent some time together crying about what they've experienced, I could say to them with genuine integrity, I really look forward to meeting your kids. You know, I can't wait to meet Marshall, who gets to grow up in the presence of God, never experiences sin. Um, I, I can't wait to be like David and say, well, he's not going to come be with us. But we're going to get to go be with him. Um, God isn't playing with them. He's not playing with you. He is trying to invite you higher up and farther in into the promise of the resurrection and the power and the peace of his spirit that frees you from making this life work and instead makes it possible for you to let people off the hook, let them not be God, and love them even when they don't meet your desires. And as you do so, then you can hear the Lord say this to you as he did to Moses. Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you and take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. And I'm going to stand there in front of you on that rock at Horeb. And when you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have come that we might have life and life to the full and that that life is found when we set our hearts on things above and when we set our faith on the rock that is you instead of our circumstances. We pray now, Lord, that you would help us to drink deeply of your life, death, resurrection, and promised return that we might experience the full life you came to give us. We ask this in your name. Amen.